0: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Aligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we are talking about education, SDG 4, and the knowledge paradox in education. And by that I mean the gap between the existing evidence and the very small amount of that evidence that's actually being used by policymakers. And also we'll look at how philanthropy has a lot to say for this space and, and it's a great opportunity for philanthropy to get involved and do something about it. It is a pleasure to welcome onto the show Dr. Rhonda Grub Zakari, is the founder and chief executive officer of education.org. And she's someone who, whom I've known for a few years, who has a really distinguished record within the field of education and, indeed, within the field of philanthropy. She was formerly the Chief Executive Officer of the LEGO Foundation, was also a board member of the Global Partnership for Education, the GPE, and headed up the education practice at Porticus. So truly an interesting record indeed. Now before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at Quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, it's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Dr. Rhonda Grub-Zakhari, Zakari, is the founder and chief executive officer of education.org. Rhonda, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today.
1: Thank you so much, Alberto. We're delighted to be here.
0: Excellent. Great to see you. You're out there in Switzerland. I'm here in London, and we're going to have a great chat today. Find out about education.org, which I should point out is an amazing website address as well. I think education.org, you couldn't make it up. It's uh, its very good. Tell me a little bit about education.org. What, what is it all about?
1: I'll tell you about education.org. We are a young foundation. We're a startup, essentially. And we're focused on ensuring more of the evidence that's known, gets translated and used by education leaders everywhere. In short, we're really focused on closing the gap between knowing and doing in education.
0: Great. And what made you think about this space? What What was it that triggered in your head? Well, there's a gap here, there's a need here, we, we need to do something about it.
1: So I could talk on end about my experience formerly as a physician, and the infrastructure we have in the health system about translating, accessing, and using evidence, but let's not do that. Let's just talk about patients every day. Most of us have been patients at one point or another. We walk into a doctor's office, we put ourselves on the operating table, and we trust that our physician will use the latest, best available evidence in making choices about our care. When I moved into the field of education, I was quite shocked to see that we do not expect the same from our education systems. Mm. We do not have this expectation and education.org was created to rectify that. In short, what we do is try to make existing evidence and existing actors more accessible, useful, and embedded in decision-making practices every day.
0: Right, right. Fascinating stuff. And tell me, so do the folks within education policy, within the education world... No. Are they aware that they perhaps aren't using evidence as, as, as much as they could or they should?
1: So let's be so congratulatory and appreciative of everything that's happened in education. You know, in the last 10 years already, a lot of progress has been made. But to your question, there's, of course, a recognition that it would be better to have many more choices evidence based. Mm-hmm. There's certainly no lack of will. But many will cite that they do the best they can already now, and for sure there have been great strides made. But they consistently cite either lack of resources on their own side to access and use evidence, or the lack of infrastructure globally as key reasons why they can't do this routinely. So despite best intentions, they're not able to do this as a matter of practice. And that is pretty widely understood.
0: And so how can education.org help bridge that gap? And, indeed, and I guess by extension also philanthropy, but how, how is your work able to address this gap that you've, uh, you've identified?
1: So the reason, we took some time to explore why that gap exists, and we identified a few factors, studying carefully what works well in health and what doesn't, mm-hmm. but also asking what's needed in education to bridge this gap. And in that investigation, we found a few things that we believe can be rectified. One of them from the very beginning is when new research starts, making sure that the end users of that research are included in the design of that work, ensuring that their questions, their priorities, their context are taken to account from the very beginning, not as an endpoint, but as a starting point. That's one key thing. A second is what we call synthesis or consolidating important information on a topic level, not just by intervention. We already have many individual program interventions, program evaluations, excuse me, and those are critical and have their place, but we lack the routine consolidation by a thematic level. For example, learning in early childhood or out-of-school children or accelerated and catch-up learning. For sure, many reviews have been done in these topics occasionally, on a case-by-case basis, but we lack an ongoing, permanent, permanently embedded infrastructure that routinely synthesizes information on a topical level and elevates it to decision makers in a decision-ready way. Easy, practical, actionable, contextually relevant. And that is what we aim to do. We aim to make it easier for decision makers to access and use information everywhere. And we do this through three simple approaches. We connect existing evidence and existing actors. We amplify Evidence that needs to be taken up more widely, and we accelerate the capacity to use such
0: evidence by leaders and their teams. Did uh, you mention the early childhood development field briefly? There uh, was that at all a a, um, a poster child that set an example for what you might do? And I'm I'm thinking of our mutual friend, maybe Jack Shonkoff, and the folks at the at the Center for the Developing Child at, at Harvard, where um, you know they they sort of decomplexify as it were some of the evidence and really communicated to a broad audience, specifically policymakers as well. Was there any sort of, um, was that a template perhaps?
1: It's so interesting you raised that question because, and to fairness for our listeners today, you and I have not spoken about this before. Dr. Shonkoff was a main reason for my leaving medicine, for my taking on education as a career. He wrote an article entitled, Science Does Not Speak for Itself. And you know, this has been a mantra for much of the work behind the center that he leads. Very much around doing more to embed the skills, the talent, the resources to ensure that in early childhood, the gap between what has been learned, the tremendous advances in learning and development do make it into the hands of those who make critical choices for children everywhere, every day. So that certainly was a template for my personal choice to pursue education. It is interesting you raised it. And with regards to education.org, sure, the Harvard Center is an inspiration among others as well. Absolutely. And if we look at early childhood in particular, it's a great example of the opportunity we have when we try to close this gap. So much has been learned from neuroscience, from learning sciences, from psychology in early childhood. and. In part, thanks to the Harvard Center and many actors around the world, the push to amplify, translate, and use this work in policy and its rollout has had a dramatic effect on improving policies and practices globally. We're not done yet, but that is a great example that there are many others that are waiting to be uncovered for older children, for young adults, for parents, for teachers, and so forth.
0: How easy is it to, um, fascinating stuff, by the way, how easy is it or possibly not easy at all, to communicate with these policymakers, to reach out to them, to make them aware of the fact that you exist and the resources that you have, and also the other way around in the communication, You know, for you to understand who they are and what it is that they need in order to make informed decisions.
1: So the our ability to be effective in working with and supporting education leaders has to do with Our fundamental focus on them. The work that we are doing is for them, with them, and in part by them. Let me explain what I mean by that. Our networks as an organization and with our partners are rooted first and foremost with education leaders, and then supplemented and complemented by other partner networks that are critical to this work. That network has had a very huge influence on shaping what questions we focus on, and within those questions, the types of um, methodologies and sub questions, if you will, that we explore. So we start with them, and the network of our team, uh, also with my prior roles at the Global Partnership for Education, has led to a very a wide and deep network across education leaders. So we are not we are always looking to build the network, but we're starting from a very strong point. In addition, we've begun forming. We've started to form a global council. This global council is primarily targeting education leaders. They're joined by their technical team leaders, but it's specifically a problem-solving forum by, for, and about education leaders and the challenges they face. So in this way, we are growing from the beginning with this network hand in hand. And that is what enables us to see a very feasible path for improvement and for impact. This is very different. Knowledge platforms are needed and have their place. And there are many of them in education that have been effective. This is not simply a knowledge sharing platform. This is a way of working that partners with education leaders as they make the most critical choices for pressing issues and does this in two ways. By tying them together with information created for purpose to their issues and also linking them to one another, brokering relationships in a purpose-built way through action-oriented convening and targeted matchmaking. If you will, almost like a Tinder for education experience <laughs> among education leaders.
0: Yeah. So now, you know, well, that's fascinating stuff. And obviously, we're in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, some of the conversations I was having recently, we were sort of talking about the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, perhaps that light was premature. But um, education has been really hit uh, by this pandemic and schools have shut down schools some have reopened the way they reopened is varied in different countries uh, kids have lost out on so many uh, learning opportunities girls in particular I know you've done a little bit of work uh, or possibly quite a lot of work uh, with regards to the pandemic as a context and I'd love to get a little bit of insight into that.
1: COVID okay, posed for us a uh- terrible challenge. is a terrible situation around the world, but also an incredible opportunity to demonstrate the impact of working in the ways we just discussed in the last few minutes. So i like to tell you this story in a granular way because I'd like you to imagine yourself on this journey with us. In March, as schools started to close down, we were literally one month in operation.
0: March 2020.
1: Exactly. March 2020. Thank you for the clarification. We had just started. I had hired our first employee. And we really were at a loss to understand what are, we, what are we going to do here? And as many in the world trying to understand what does this look like over time? No one understood in March 2020, this was not going to be done one month later, right? We were all watching and wondering. We felt a little helpless in the beginning because we had an intention to share and elevate and use information. But at the pandemic the pandemic's start, we did not really see how to do that. So we decided to wait and watch and wait just a little bit. Very soon after our emerging country partners, our new and young partner group started to ask us if we could share anecdotal examples of what was happening in Europe. So partners in Africa, Latin America, even the US to some extent asking us what's happening over there. We hear that some of the countries are opening already in May. How are they doing it? When are they doing it? When in the case trajectory are they going back? How long after the peak? What choices are they making to go back? What are the things they're putting in place, and are those things successful? Can you help us navigate these choices? We found ourselves very quickly with an audience of reopening task forces, literally around the world, who were looking for this type of information. So, in one week with a a scrappy, energetic, innovative team, we decided to try an experiment to see what we could put together. And very quickly, we pulled off case numbers that were being f- filled in daily from around the world with school opening status, so the quantitative side of things, the numbers of, of cases in schools. And our team also then started to pull everything off of the internet they could find from ministries and press releases around the world. And we literally began an all-hands approach to understand when countries are making the decision to go back and how they're doing it, and then what's happening as a result. And that led to our COVID tracking and analysis, which still goes on today. Um, So what began as a scrappy experiment became something in a very short time that had uptake with government leaders, with reopening task forces. And it then consumed our entire attention for, for nearly 18 months. And we heard stories, first of all, we continued to evolve the tracking. What began as a very simple flat tracker on the website, but still highly used, evolved into something interactive, collecting more parameters, having um, synthesis at certain points of time to understand the bigger picture. And as a result, six months after the first schools closed, we were the first in the world to state, to show that the facts did not support any concrete link between school status and cases. Meaning you could not assume that if you close schools, cases will go down or if you open schools, they will necessarily get worse. We didn't say that schools were irrelevant. We showed that there are many other complicated features that feed into the mix, but choices for school opening had to be considered without considering direct impact on caseloads in countries. We took away that myth.
0: Counterintuitive.
1: Counterintuitive, that was, and this is why it's a great example in our education world. We do a lot of things intuitively. We do not use enough evidence to ensure that we can counter myths that still persist within our education system. Similarly, if I build on this COVID story, one year out of the first shutdowns, so last January, January 2021, we also showed that there was no definitive link between deaths and closing schools. That was really critical. It does follow from what I said earlier, but I'm just putting again on the table for you, there were some other myths that were broken in that that paper as well. There is so much status quo in our education field. And until we bring information to the table to crack open those myths, to crack open the status quo, We just continue investing in interventions that are not very effective. And we also, unfortunately, inhibit the spread of good practices. This is really, really critical. So COVID showed us a way to do this in the beginning, even though it was slightly different than we initially intended. And we asked users what was interesting. Why did you use this so much? It was used and still is being used in more than 115 countries. And in many cases, by teams that were navigating choices. And we heard things like, we like that it's simple. We like that it's interactive. We can choose what we want to see and play with the data in different ways. We like that it's nearly real time. We're not seeing something three years after it was done. And it's relevant to our context. We can separate continents or countries that are not relevant for our choices. We can look at what's relevant. This we took away and are using it now as we begin more of our our core mission towards synthesizing evidence in learning and access to education.
0: Now this is a great example, and I can I can certainly see how uh, ministers of education, civil servants working within the ministries of education would, would love to get their hands on this sort of data to help them inform the decisions and uh, validate their decisions as well. What about the other, the other factor that then follows from this, I think fairly naturally, which is about all of these kids who have lost out on valuable learning hours that you know they just simply couldn't go to a school period and then again and again even more specifically about girls many of whom may never come back to school what 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 are some of your insights that you think would be of use to um to those policy makers and those folks out there
1: what you raise is so critical and also very sad if we just paint the picture a little more broadly a few more brush strokes of more than 250 billion days of school being lost globally. And today, even today, I mean, with the new variant, things are always changing. But many countries don't recognize how many children are still in countries where they're only partially open. This partially open status really masks how serious the problem is of children not being fully in school yet. So as of today, there's still about half, around 700 million, around half of the world's children are still not fully in school, half, that's huge. And then of course that half is overrepresented within marginalized communities. For example, girls, particularly in rural areas, learners with disabilities or learning differences, Um, children in any way who are marginalized and have a harder time reaching school virtually or or physically. Now, before I share some examples of what might help to close those gaps to reduce that tragic number, let me share that our team, our education.org team, is in the midst right now of a rapid effort to crowdsource what we know in the world about catch-up and accelerated learning. Exactly because these most marginalized populations are likely to be out the longest and likely to have the highest challenge when coming back. And so this world of catch-up learning, also known as AEPs, Accelerated Education Programs, sometimes called a few different things in different countries or by different organizations. We've known about them for a long time, but they have existed mostly in the education and emergency community. And particularly when children who have been out of school are returning to some type of formal or informal, particularly, environment. Mm -hmm. Our aim is in recognizing that what we know there goes far beyond what's already been published. There have been some excellent and important syntheses and reviews created by the Working Group for Accelerated Education and their partners. And we are working with them as well to build on that by casting a very wide net, also to literature that's usually excluded from such reviews. This is a big part of education.org's mission to democratize education. That sounds big and fancy, but what does it mean? It means widening the range of voices that can be included in this dialogue. And so for catch-up learning specifically in COVID recovery, we know that we've had so much work informally documented over the past years in AEPs by foundations, by governments, by agencies, by NGOs. And right now we are pulling that together. And essentially we are translating it into grounded guidance. By doing this, we're answering the question again by some of the members of this ministry network who have asked for easier access, more transparency around what the world knows around catch-up learning. And I hear so often, I know that our listeners will as well, But something from that place will not work here. You can't replicate and copy. Is it really valuable? Is it worth the investment to bring this all together and share it? And I can only say absolutely yes, because after working and speaking with ministers and their teams in different countries, there are patterns of questions. They're not millions of questions. There are probably dozens. And the questions you're interested in reflect your context. So, for example, with catch-up learning, if we look across Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, particularly, there's a handful of very similar issues. Catch-up learning has usually not been part of the formal system. It's usually been outside. And now, governments are being asked to put guidelines in place or policies in order to help unify standards. For example, what does it mean to be a teacher in catch-up learning? Do they need to have the normal teacher certifications, or is there some other process by which teachers can be recognized and developed? How about curriculum? In many countries, because these catch-up programs have been outside the system, they've been provided for by private users. That means various curriculum, various methods of assessment. And now there's a real pressure. You can imagine there are all kinds of issues related to that. How do you decide on a promotion? If they're promoted, then what? Do they go into the normal system, the state system? Do they stay informal? And so on. All of these to just show an example that Leaders everywhere struggle with the same type of questions, even though the answers may not be identical in their context. And we've heard time and time again that our sharing this information in an easy to access, digestible way will go a long way to helping them
0: make these choices. FASCINATING, FASCINATING. And you're also, you're working with some remarkable partners as well. So I know one of the things we're really keen on is about just talk about the opportunities that philanthropies have to make a difference here you're already working with some remarkable folks like at the Oak Foundation and Dubai Cares and Porticas and many others as well.
1: And also the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and
0: indeed, indeed. Jakobs
1: Foundation um, and also USAID. And I hope I didn't leave anyone out there, but let me just say this before I share a little bit more about our network. This group of investors and partners is incredible because they chose to come on board before we had done anything. They believed in this concept, they saw the problem, and they were eagerly willing to sign up to be part of an effort that could really begin to make a difference. So I take the opportunity to thank them for taking that step. In philanthropy, we speak a lot about taking risks, but having been on the other side of the table, we've not always put our money where our mouth is. Often we expect some very solid initial impact, irrefutable impact before we feel comfortable to invest. And often boards request that. I understand it. But I'm thanking our investors for taking the first step with us to get to that point. Something wonderful about this investor group, and it grows as we speak, Alberto, they're all committed to social justice in some way or another and equity in education. And that is, at the end of the day, the root of what we're doing. We believe it's it's, not acceptable that information exists somewhere in the world that could help unlock opportunities and it's not used. We feel that's absolutely not acceptable. And we feel an obligation to do our best to make what's out there visible, accessible, useful, and used. And this partner group is committed to that. Not only are they supporting our work in in many ways, but they're also very interested in learning from each other. And as I like to say, learning about learning together they're wonderful
0: and, uh, and on that note in terms of learning about learning and how they're collaborating and sharing information um one of the posts that you used to have you, you were heading up the the education side at portica's um what how are you finding these foundations now looking at the information and the data that you guys at education.org are putting together and and is it is it informing those divisions those people heading up the education practices at lego and dubai cares or what have you you know these foundations that care about sdg4 are they um are they interacting with the with the information and the data that you're you're um curating
1: because we're so young i think it's a little early to measure how much our direct impact is with organizations like the one you mentioned but i can share this first in the sector in general, there's been much higher noise over the past year, year and a half, around elevating the use of evidence. The dialogue has really started to grow beyond, let's create evidence, let's create a platform for putting evidence on, and really towards the use, because it's not straightforward all the time. There is a know-how, there is a science around evidence translation and use that we haven't invested in, we've underinvested as a sector, and that is getting more attention. And we take that as a great step forward. With regards to the types of organizations, foundations in particular, we definitely see more movement in that direction, particularly with our partners. All of them have already been very keen investors and evidence. And recently, uh, we shared some due diligence, some analysis we did as part of our determining to go forward with this initiative. We shared that a key gap, a key reason for a gap in our sector is the incentive structure. Incentive structure by funders and funders of almost any kind. It can include foundations, yes, but it can also include large bilateral donors. It um, it can also include agencies.
0: Um, Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the incentives dynamics.
1: I would love to, because even though there are many barriers that stand in the way, We see that incentives are a very important part of the root cause. This means that in our sector, funding is primarily driving the creation of new research. It's rewarding the creation of new research. And what we miss, unlike in health, we miss the embedded incentive that new research starts with users' needs. It's filling a defined priority, and that it's building on the latest, best available evidence. That's one part of the incentive structure that is missing. There's another part towards the end of that evidence cycle, which is the incentive to ensure that the product is not the end goal. The product, the research product, is a mechanism. It's a means to an end. It's not an end. Just like in health. Research and evidence are terribly important, but the goal is not just to produce a paper. Or to have a webinar. The goal is to change behavior. And that goal is, of course, shared by education actors everywhere. But our incentive structure by the funding community could do much more to elevate, reward, celebrate, ensuring that evidence products are useful and they're actually used. This also can tie into incentives related to beginning new interventions and the type of learning that is catalogued and invested in during intervention implementations as well. So there's a range of incentives. And we know, despite foundation's best intentions, there maybe has not been an awareness of the unintentional blocks that are put on research use by the incentives that are in place today. Therefore, we say it's only positive. It can only go up from here. And we see great opportunity, but without the funding community being behind this, it will be very hard to achieve this. Incentives must be part of the equation for improving this education knowledge bridge.
0: What's the feedback you're getting from those heads of education at the foundations or indeed the ministers of education in different countries? Uh, What's the feedback that you're getting?
1: Overall, we've been very enthused by the type of positive feedback we receive. It's a little different on the different groups from the different groups that you mentioned, Alberta, from ministers, we hear things. um, And in fact, some have posted publicly about this, that it's about time. Mm -hmm. They know that we're not the only, we need to have more actors involved in this work. and, And there are others who have made education, knowledge and translation, their life's focus, but bringing together these actors in a way that collectively can accelerate this bridge is highly appreciated by them. And you asked about ministers, but to our, Uh, Deep appreciation, we've also had feedback from very important education leaders at county levels or at city levels who say exactly. It's very difficult for them to access information, and they've never seen a group focused only on this, not as a project, not as a side project we do once and leave, but as making it our mission to ensure decision-ready information becomes a rule, not an exception in education. From foundations, very similar. Foundations, interestingly, the, the messages they bring forward are that they have invested quite a lot in research, and they haven't necessarily seen the impact of that research in the sector. And they also recognize there is a gap between this knowledge generation and use in, in decision-making. So we've had a very, very um, open arms welcome by the foundation community. And I'd like to add one more group there, the NGO community. These are the frontline actors, if I may, those on the grassroots level doing this work every day. For the most part, we've also found very open arms by them because they often produce work that they would wish could be more amplified and reach the voices, reach the ears, excuse me, of those who are making decisions, particularly in their communities and their countries once in a while though and i take a moment to share this exception because it's relevant for the funding community once in a while they tell us they embrace this ambition but they can't participate because their funding agreements have prohibited them from sharing information the resulting product is the sole property of the funder and therefore they cannot share it now this is actually prevalent In some regions of the world and here's another place where philanthropy can help it's my assumption that the previous structure of funding agreements probably didn't take into account this knowledge sharing i do not know any philanthropic organization that wants to block sharing that would be terrible and crazy and makes no sense but i do think exactly this points a perverse incentive an unintentional incentive of keeping information locked in and that's another simple way tomorrow if every foundation got rid of such a clause that would already do something to help the sharing and the knowledge bridge become
0: stronger. Excellent. Yeah, and I can absolutely see how those, those sort of incentives uh, create a little bit of a bottleneck. What um, what optimism do you have right now? If we're, if we're looking at the next 10 years, let's round it off to 10 years for the Sustainable Development Goals 2030. Are we feeling optimistic about the direction of travel and what could be achieved if you and I are having a catch-up in at 2030.
1: We are so optimistic about the future because there's great momentum already. It started before us, but we we're really helping to put some infrastructure in place, tools, processes, know-how, resources that can help this become more systematic. And so yes, in 2030, we want to see education be an evidence-driven industry, not political, not emotional, not personal. And we believe this can happen, Alberto. Let me give an example. Today, if we look at a country's education strategy, it's called different things in different countries, sector plan, education plan, but it is essentially their strategy and then their budget for how they will implement it. In doing a a first scan across countries' national sector strategies, very little is based in evidence, very little. My estimation would be less than 5%. Now, it's not to say that The 95% has no bearing in reality. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is for a document, for a plan that puts so much of people's time and energy and country resources on the line, there is so much more knowledge out there that exists that should be part of that plan formation. So I think it can only go up, especially because of the great momentum and support of the philanthropic community and agencies. UN, World Bank, um, agencies are are banding together in order to promote the same type of work through their own mechanisms. But here's where I'd like to add. So we've always said from the beginning that education.org seeks to democratize education evidence by bringing in a wider range of voices, by taking the user into account from the beginning, starting and ending with the user. We've also said we know that we're adding something critical To the field that's not yet there but we also know we can't do this alone and it must be done in a very respectful and close partnership with existing actors you can't do it alone it's very hard being a startup in the education sector because the sector is so oriented towards the status quo and we have large organizations long-standing organizations agencies donors etc and sometimes there can be a bit of a skepticism about what a new player can add to the field. And to those who may be listening today, I would say, we need you, we need each other, but we should not try to prevent new ideas from coming forward. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain.
0: Hmm. You know, I I was going to ask you for a key takeaway before we wrap up the conversation, but perhaps that's the key takeaway, I'm not sure, but.
1: Okay. I think that is a good key takeaway. I would add another one, but it's much more solicitous. Go for it. I would say if anyone is interested to learn more about this gap, why it exists and what we can do, I would invite you to visit education.org and not read the hundred page white paper, but go to the digital platform. It is short, crisp, engaging, has received very serious, positive feedback exactly because it's not the status quo. Spend five minutes of your time and let us know what you think.
0: Perfect. You heard it here. Rhonda, it's been an absolute pleasure seeing you again and hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today. I know you're extremely busy and I'm delighted we managed to get the schedules to to align. Thank you. And I sincerely wish you the very best of luck with this endeavor and continued success. And I'm looking forward to having you back on the show in due course.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Rhonda Grub-Zakari, founder and chief executive officer of education.org. For information about this episode and 150 other remarkable interviews with thought leaders in the world of philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at legi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Thanks very much for tuning in. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Leave us a rating and a review, and I'll catch you next week.